Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. In this episode, I will be speaking with Xing Pei Tai. Director of Global Policy for Cities and Sustainability at Uber. Xingpei will share her perspectives on transportation, design, advocacy, and policy. She argues that technology will not change the fundamentals of place. People and experience must be at the center of the discussion if we are to make long-lasting and meaningful changes to our transportation networks. We will speak about her latest initiatives at Uber and how these ideas could change the way we move through cities. But before beginning the conversation, I would like to introduce my guest. Xingpei Tai's work converges at the intersection of design, policy, and governance to transform the built environment with a focus on sustainable and inclusive transportation. She is currently the director of global policy for cities and sustainability at Uber, where she leads a team focused on creating a sustainable, inclusive, and multimodal urban future. Prior to joining Uber, she founded Make Public, a social impact analysis firm that specializes in the public realm, and she was the executive director of the Gale Institute, a nonprofit that advocated for public life and public spaces. Xingpei has also served as Deputy Executive Director of Transit Center, a national foundation focused on improving urban transportation, and she was the Director of the Cities and Transportation Program, part of the Energy and Climate Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Xingpei was a commissioner for the New York City Public Design Commission, and she taught urban design at Columbia University and Parsons School of Design. She holds a BA from Cornell University and a Master's of Science from the London School of Economics. Xingpei, thank you for joining On City. It is a real pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thanks so much for having me, Carrie. So, Xingpei, I heard you tell the story of growing up in an American suburb and how that experience impacted your understanding of mobility and cities. Can you share this with us? Yes, it was, um, in reflection, quite a transformative um, experience. So I grew up in Duet, which is a suburb outside of Syracuse, New York. And my parents, um, who worked very hard to get a house in one of the wealthier suburbs with a great public school, and uh, they that house though was a reflection of many decisions we make back then about what it meant to be in a nice so-called nicer neighborhood. It was um, it was a single-family home on a cul-de-sac, set back away from a lot of amenities. You were forced to drive. There were no sidewalks. And as immigrants, it often felt very isolating. Um, we were a one-car family, and if um, my father took the car to work, we were stuck, basically, on this cul-de-sac. And I remember looking at a map of where my friends lived in the neighborhood just adjacent to ours, um, but without any sidewalks and um, a very you know fast moving road, there was no way of getting there. And my school frankly wasn't that far away either. And it was just very interesting that we were so close yet so distant uh, in this neighborhood um, that we literally could not form the social connections and strengthen the social connections that were quite apparent on a map in a, in a kind of a bird's eye view. And when I got a chance to go to a city and I got the chance to experience a very different composition of life, um, I lived, my first uh, relatively big city that I lived in was Boston. Um, and I lived in Harvard Square. It was a place with transit, buses, walking, biking. There were shops, there were apartments on top of shops, there were some homes, some grand homes that were single family homes, but the lots were quite small. They were quite a, quite close to their neighboring buildings. 
And everything was felt to me coming from that experience of living in the suburbs, quite um, integrated. I had, because there was a transit system, I had the entire city at my disposal. Um, There was a lot of access. Um, It was very easy to do things. I never had to worry. I did not have a car at the time. I never had to worry about managing the car. Um, I could just walk out the door and do what I needed to do that day. And um, I felt a great sense of liberation from that experience. And, And so that really informed a lot of what of the decisions I made um, later on. Mm, that's a that's a great story. And I love the way you describe uh, the composition of life, you know, how the design of the built environment can directly shape um, the quality of our lives. And, you know, when you mentioned that things were relatively close, but inaccessible to you in your youth, I think oftentimes in these um, somewhat isolating urban environments, it's really the very, very young and the elderly that I think have the greatest challenges because those in the middle that can, let's say, move by way of car, oftentimes, um, you know, are not as in tune with how isolating it can be. So um, I think there probably are many people out there that could connect with that experience. Um, So thank you for the story. In speaking with all of my guests, I often ask them about their mentors, um, as I really believe that no one arrives to any level of success without the influence and the guidance of mentors. And these mentors can really be alive or, or dead. You shared with me the impact that Jane Jacobs' book, Life and Death of the American City, had on you. Can you tell us what lessons you uh, took away from the book? She was such an inspiration to so many. And I think people see different, take different things from her. And I think for me, there were two things that were um, really inspiring. One was the deft way she wrote about people and the way her observations about the life that took place right in front of her as she closely looked at uh, her street, her neighbors. And it, I think it really uh, gave the idea of a street a very different meaning. I think we often think of it as just a conduit for vehicles. Um, and that is a very modernist way of looking at our streets. And she she went against the grain, right? She, she wrote this at a time when that was a prevailing um, idea, and she she challenged it. And and she also made it quite beautiful. You know, the ballet of the street. Um, she she really gave it some uh, a different um, different. Uh, colors that we just didn't think about at the time. And we continue to ignore, I would say. And then I think the second part of this that was really inspiring is that she spoke truth to power. She wrote this when all the dominant forces and power structures and policies were leaning towards going against looking at the people on the street, thinking about your neighborhoods. There were big decisions being made about massive roadway infrastructure, uh, how to fund um, moving people around. And it was a mass, it was a massive experiment that, you know, the highway, the interstate highway system connected all the cities, but they did it at great cost and sacrifice to many neighborhoods. And the calculation of the neighborhoods that would bear the brunt of this cost were enormous. And she wasn't afraid to speak up about this. I mean, she if you think about who she was standing up to, she didn't have any credentials. She had a little funding from some foundations. Uh, she she was a mom and she went up against uh, the power brokers. And so I find that super inspiring, both of those things coming together. And you see later on as she found, she, you know, she really found her voice in this conversation, this public debate that she was able to weave these two things together, that she was able to center people and the considerations and her criticisms about the policy structures and the conditions, the systemic conditions we set up in the way that we shape our cities. It bring those two things, I think, um, really give me a lot of um, energy and inspiration to think about that we we can do those things together. Mm. Um, We can can hold both of those things in our minds. Yeah, I think that... um... 
I think she was an extraordinary figure. And actually, maybe in today's polarizing climate uh, and political debates, I think she's a reminder that, you know, we need to be able to uh, not be afraid um, to present a dissenting opinion and be able to have a conversation, uh, you know, to advance a better society. So, um, so yes, I, I, for those who are in the audience that haven't read Jane Jacobs' Life and Death of the American City, I would highly recommend that it be put on your reading list. <laughs> yes. Um, but maybe as a segue to that question, um, having, having also worked now in the, not only, uh, the policy of, uh, transportation, but also in the design of cities. What what do you believe are the characteristics of a great street? You know, I, I don't actually start with the design. I, I take a page out of the death and life of great American cities and think about using our eyes and our experience and looking at what takes place on the street. Um, and so I often think that, you know, they don't need to be fancy. It doesn't need to be expensive materials. Um, but what they need to do is make people feel like they're important and they're vital and they're considered as they try, as they walk down the street or live on the street. And maybe there are some things that, um, help facilitate this, like wider sidewalks, um, connected spaces. Um, you're not, you can see where you're going. You're not like wondering <laughs> where you are, you know, you have a sense of place, uh, on the street, there's an embrace of greenery, maybe above you or next to you. So the tr- you know, street trees or plantings, um, there's um, a ver- variety of things to look at and experience immediately adjacent. So the ground plane isn't a blank wall. Uh, you're thinking about um, giving people a way of drawing them down the street, you know, every four feet, that's, uh, that's a metric that Yen Gale uses. Uh, and, and so like, these are little, can you, you know, can you say what that is, uh, for those in the audience that might not know what that might be? Well, what is a four foot metric? Um, well, this is, there's been, uh, studies that show that the way people walk down the street, they're at, their eyes are traveling down at a certain speed that is different than maybe um, a car traveling at 40 miles an hour, right? Or 30 miles an hour even, that people are walking at maybe 2.5 to three miles an hour. And that is a inclusive speed. Um, I think we often design pedestrian speeds for a little a little faster than that, which is I think incorrect. Um, we should be designing for children, for seniors to be able to get through streets and at that speed, you're taking things in just several feet in front of you. You're not, um, you're not, you can't look very far ahead, right? And so what if what is immediately adjacent to you actually ends up being quite important. Um, and I think everyone has had the disorienting feeling of being in a place where it's all blank walls and you can't tell where you are, which direction you're in. It's very disorienting. And it feels like a block can feel like extremely long walk. And then there are times when you're in the city and there's so much variation at the ground plane that you lose all sense of where you're going. And it's so beautiful and so fulfilling and so satisfying to walk that you walk and walk, walk all day. You know, I'm thinking like Amsterdam, Paris, London, um, but then other cities, you know, um, Taipei, Singapore, you know, like that idea of being able to just continue throughout the city. Um, that's, I think those are the, those are the really beautiful streets and and it's usually slower speeds, you know, it's, it's a people centered, it's a human speed on mm. those places. Yeah. Maybe it goes back to our introduction about, even though when we're considering these vast transportation networks, we really have to be thinking at a, at, at I guess at multiple scales, we have to thinking we have to be thinking about the region um, equally with the experience of the to the pedestrian on foot to be able to create a successful transportation networks. And then your your answer reminds us of that. Um, I mean, in researching your career for this conversation, I would say that uh, your early experiences were more seem to be more focused on. Uh, let's say the physical design of cities. I, I know that you participated through many of your um, roles in different um, nonprofits that we spoke about at the introduction in the design of streets and and even in um, intersection design. That doesn't sound uh, particularly glamorous, but actually is really really important to the design of uh, streets. And uh, but at one point you shifted towards 
policy. Um, I think because you believe that policy was capable of maybe making more systematic changes. um, Is that the case? Yeah, there was definitely a shift in my approach to solving this puzzle, this question of how do we make places that are that create more social connections. Um, and yeah, there was, it happened at when I was at a bicycle advocacy organization. Uh, I, I was redesigning intersections. It was not very glamorous, but um, imagine a time when curb cuts and bulb outs, and those are you know extensions of the sidewalk. Um, curb cuts are, allow strollers and wheelchairs to go up and down. It's a bit of a sidewalk ramp. Um, when those, that was not, you know, not very common and you would be needing to show the, the transport agency that there was another design that was feasible, that could meet engineering standards that wouldn't be contested by their profession. Um, and it was, you know, we were taking all sorts of best practices from other cities and trying to apply them in these small ways, intersection by intersection. And we would make, you know, mock up a alternative design that would um, inform a campaign and then do some organizing to convince the city council to consider this and advocate pressure the transport agency, the DOT to, to make these changes. And they were always reluctant because it meant going outside of their comfort zone. I mean, all of these things. Um, I did this maybe two or three times. And at the third time, you know, we were in this conversation about where, what would be the next ideal intersection to do this? And I had this thought, like, I don't know if I can have another campaign. It is so resource intensive. It was a very small team. It would take a lot out of everyone to make this happen. And it was like, we, and frankly, we just, there was, it took a lot of time and I felt like we didn't have time to waste. People were, there were fatalities, uh, roadway fatalities, and the most vulnerable pedestrians were were the ones that were really um, experiencing the worst of it and uh, felt like we need to be way more efficient about how we're going about this. So um, turn to policy. Policy was a way of codifying the design changes and policy can take shape in so many different ways. It doesn't necessarily need to be legislative. I would say in this case, um, we would need to maybe make some of these very basic street design elements part of the operating manual for the DOT. That, that it was a agency policy that needed to change. Um, it was, and in, in, in to do that, you needed to, you know, get this over legal. You needed to make everyone comfortable within the agency. You need to assure the engineers they weren't going to lose their licenses over things like this. And, you know, you had to grapple with some really technical things like turning radii of vehicles uh, to justify the intersection redesigns. But once it was in the playbook, it could be applied everywhere. And all the intersections were now um, made, you know, apply, it, they, they could have these treatments. And one of the first playbooks that came out was in New York City, the DOT put, design, put out a urban street design manual. Um, in, many, in many places, um, and especially, I think what was strange about the US is a wealthy nation, but it didn't at that time have urban street design uh, design practices, I would say. It was applying highway design to urban areas and assuming that that was what people, what the city needed. And so this was really a step out to say, that's not the way we should think about our city streets. We have to think about it a different way. And that codified it and made it part of, you know, even road crews could, were able to do some light paint touches that reshape to the intersection and make them safer and easier for people to cross the street. And um, yeah, so I, I really shifted over into policy and we have to, you know, think about changing the equation all these different ways to yeah. make this way more efficient. 
Yeah, I, I can see that though. But you begin with the point of view of the physical and social experience of walking, which then it needs to be shaped by design. Uh, but I can see how maybe the time spent on designing one um, intersection, you could see how well, if I spent my time changing the manual, right? Yeah, then maybe I can change exactly. all of the intersections. So I, I think that's an interesting lesson for designers out there. Um but maybe we can delve a little bit more into best practices, because I often find that people are eager to critique existing situations, right? But when one wants to make change, one wants to one wants to find inspirational examples to point to and to learn from. So, you know, given your focus on transportation policy and planning, what cities do you believe have the best transportation networks in the world? <laughs> That's a really hard question. Um I and I I think about best in terms of the ones that really integrate many of the outcomes that we seek from cities. Um, the urgency wasn't all wasn't just safety, but also climate change. Right, um, transport emissions are the fastest growing source of emissions on and it's on road. It's not airplanes. It is literally the vehicles on the street, surface transportation. So I felt this, I, I, I take that from that lens and I think of the one I hold up as sort of an ideal policy environment um, is Switzerland, which is a small country. Um, I recognize that, but the Ministry of Transport and Environment are in one agency. They uh, completely embrace the cost and benefit of different transportation modes and they and then they set and make policy decisions and set infrastructure decisions based on that. So, for example, um, they they are very reliant on importing oil for, you know, they're a landlocked country. Um, it's it they they wanted to reduce their dependence on oil. And they also saw the impact of climate change um, affecting their, literally their environment. Uh, and and they are a very small country, as I said, so they felt like they had to take some first steps. One of the things they decided was they needed to get wealthy people into um, into into trains and and get them to give up car driving, private car driving. And to do that, they designed a system where it was all about convenience. Five every five five minutes after the hour, you can catch that train to Zurich. Um, and and then they designed the transit stations in that way and the, the trains that way. Um, and, so, and everything is seamless. So it's incredibly multimodal from rail to light rail, even cog rail going up the mountains, um, the ferries. Uh, and, and it's all designed to create that starting with the person leaving their house, they have a they have a policy of ensuring that people live within a certain walking distance to a transit stop. Um, and that's how the system also is designed. Uh, they nibbled away at parking. So all, all those considerations, all the way up to that federal level that I started with is encapsulated in that system. Um, but I also think there's so many lovely things to take away from other Transport systems, I love the way that some cities really use their their transportation as a placemaking um, opportunity. And you see this happening in some in some countries where transit stations are also the place where they can send letters as a post office, they can pay utility bills, they can do shopping, they there's a library, you know, all of these things coming together um, is also so inspiring. You see, um, at least, um, let's say from an American perspective, since both of us, you're currently speaking to me from San Francisco and I'm in Miami. So we're in both, we're in opposite coasts uh, of America. Do, do you see that there's beginning to be a shift um, away from the highway area era and towards maybe an embrace of, let's say, rail or these kind of integrated networks in America? I mean, from your, I'm curious from your perspective. I think we have an opportunity to move in that direction, but it is a challenging thing to ask of the transit agencies that are currently facing a fiscal crisis. 
with ridership significantly down um, in most major cities in the best transit system cities, New York, San Francisco, um, Chicago, Boston, they haven't recovered to pre-pandemic levels. And congestion is also higher than pre-pandemic levels in most places because people bought cars. Um, so we've already, we've tilted the balance of this in a, in a, I would say more negative direction, but opportunity, but crisis is an opportunity, right? And if we're going, and I'm very supportive of funding transit, funding transit operations at the highest level, having the state fund city transportation, um, if that is the case, though, I think this is the oppor- this is the opportunity to do things differently, to think about operations differently, to consider ways that you can connect people outside of the hub and spoke model. The hub and spoke model is, you know, this convention of always having a central business district and everything, all the the entire system directing people to that center. We are in a way more polycentric model of urbanization. I think. Now there are more, there's densification maybe in neighborhoods. There are people want to travel around the edges and the transit agency may still hold all the power to make this possible. And the DOT may have all the you know tools to make the streets lively and um, amazing, thriving. And we have to bring this all together and think about our system in a really different way. So I well, yeah. think we're at that, we, we have to think about it differently. Well, I think that's a good way to take a quick break. Um, and when we return, I think we're going to delve into your latest initiatives at Uber and how these projects um, may play a role in this kind of tipping point, perhaps, um, and certainly influence the way we will move through our cities. So don't miss the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Xingpei Tai, the current director of global policy for cities and sustainability at Uber. And we're going to be talking to her about her latest initiatives and how they may change the way that we move through our cities. 
Shinpei, given your commitment to sustainability and your previous positions in the public sector, Uber may not seem like the obvious choice. So why Uber? Yeah, it's not the obvious choice. I'm very aware. Um, I, I hope you're hearing that I'm so committed to climate change, to working on climate change, but also centering people in the changes that we need. And I noticed over the years as I um, moved in different, I, I had the privilege of moving in, in working in really different organizations, um, always with a lens towards that policy change piece to make the design of cities um, much more human-centered, I that we were maybe often speaking to the choir. Uh, we were only reaching people within our community, and we were then fighting over the scraps. You know, there was like a huge piece of work that needed to be done um, outside of the community to reach the general public to really change behavior without even people realizing they were changing their behavior in a way. And we were fighting over really small things. And so the gains that we, as we gained ground as advocates, I felt like the wins became much more incremental. Playbooks were made, designs were changed, in, you know, infrastructure, bicycle infrastructure got funded, pedestrian infrastructure got funded. Um, but we were starting to, you know, bicker over whether or not e-bikes were real bikes or something like that. And I felt like I, you know, I was looking for something that really looked at the problem in a really different way. Um, Uber, while I was, you know, working in these, in this more nonprofit capacity, Uber at that time was gaining ground and there was incredible growth and adoption. And it, it had its, you know, it had, it was controversial, it was disruptive, um, but it was taking off and people just used it. And you can't, and, and for all the controversies it caused and the claims it made, and maybe even, you know, erroneous claims that it made, um, you couldn't disagree that it was an improvement in terms of on-demand transportation, that as a person, a woman trying to hail a cab, it was an improvement over that, um, that, uh, it, it brought um, it brought on-demand transportation to so many other people throughout a city. And I thought that adoption, the ability to reach people, the willingness to look at the problem differently, um, they were starting to look at transit partnerships. They were starting to look at bike share. Um, they, and so they they were really thinking about the whole system as they grew. And I thought that was a really interesting and dynamic place to go. Um, it was not the silver bullet, it's not the full solution, but it was a place that was trying things out and trying to make sense of it, given the um, conditions that we have to deal with, the reality of what it is. Yeah, well, maybe we can delve a little bit more into the specifics of maybe some of these um, initiatives. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, nearly 30% of greenhouse gas emissions can be attributed to our current transportation systems. Um, for that reason, Uber, under your leadership, has um, committed to utilizing a 100% electrical vehicle fleet by 2030. So how does Uber propose to build out the system of electrification? <laughs> Good question. Um, we committed to being a zero emission mobility platform uh, by in U.S., Canada, and Europe by 2030 and, a glo and globally by 2040. And in June, we added delivery to the commitment. So deliveries will become zero emission globally by 2040. And we'll be working with merchants to eliminate all unnecessary plastic from their packaging by 2030. Thank goodness. I'm, I'm sorry <laughs> to interrupt there, but I, I, I order some of this and, you know, I get a giant package with, you know, so much packaging that I can barely see what was inside. So that's a, that's a great thing. <laughs> yeah. And I, th and I think what's really interesting about this commitment is we set this ambitious target for ourselves because you have to take a leap of faith. This is the way to try things out and aim, aim, aim big, think big, do everything we can in our power to get there. But so much of what we were grappling with is the variation and policy conditions to make this possible. And so electrification, just starting on the vehicle side of things, varies greatly across the world. Wealthier nations have an opportunity to electrify four-wheel vehicles 
there's an equity component to the electrification because the vehicles are more expensive right now. Charging infrastructure is uh, not evenly distributed. And so right now there are in private car ownership, there are more, their wealthier households have greater access to electric vehicles. And we wanted to change that equation because drivers on the platform um, are, you know, more representative of lower and middle income households. Um, and then on the delivery front, this, you know, this is very new. Uh, this is this is the start of the journey. We're just looking into the packaging situation, um, working with a few NGOs to look at the opportunities that we have there. And so much of this, again, is a is um, in response to existing policies. Some cities and some regions have very strong plastic um, packaging policies already in place and restaurants are greatly incentivized to look at different options um, in what they offer their customers and other other regions do not. And so we have to account for this in in our um, in our work. Um, just because we're earlier on the delivery front, we just made that commitment in June. Just speaking about the four-wheel side, we made that commitment in uh, 2020. And so we have a bit more to share out. We surveyed drivers. Their, their main concerns are that there's um, the vehicle acquisition cost, the lack of charging, and just general lack of awareness. Like if you grew up in, you know, East Palo Alto, let's say, or um, no, uh, East LA or you know, the Bronx in New York, maybe you wouldn't have seen EVs on the street, right? So you just not as min, you know, not as much awareness. So th there, we're really leaning to three major strategies. One is supporting driver adoption of EVs, looking for vehicle discounts, charging discounts, putting packaging everything up. Um, that can make it more economically feasible for drivers to just make that first decision. We're also incentivizing trips on the platform if they're an EV. So drivers earn a little bit more every trip that they give an EV. Um, and then we're second to that, we're trying to surface those options to riders as well. So we're trying to create this marketplace, right? That's that's the that's the platform's role is to create both on the rider and the supply side, on the demand and supply side, this ability to catalyze that adoption. So there's Uber Green, you can choose an EV ride in over 200 cities around the world. Um, it's Uber Green, Comfort Electric, different types of vehicles. You can uh, plan transit, uh, journey planning um, in over 50 cities around the world. You can order bikes and scooters on the Uber app um, in over 200 cities right now. And so we're trying to put together all those options in front of people. You can do shared rides, you can rent a car, you can, so all the reasons to give up and reduce your dependence on your private car is sort of the second piece. And the third is policy advocacy. So we're looking at how to work with governments, city at the city level, or at the federal level, they're thinking about providing guidance on funding or offering guide funding to cities to supercharge their charging, um, looking at our data, presenting a case on demand forecasting, which is just the idea that if, um, if we could provide greater certainty about where people will be charging, that gives the charging companies more confidence about where to spend their money in installation and and it just brings all the parties together and say, like, we know that there's going to be this amount of demand for that kind of charging in these areas. And so we are very confident it's a worthwhile investment to be making. And so our, our data is playing a role in, um, in that conversation. So in all of these fronts, that's what we're doing. And what's so interesting at this point is leaning into all these different things we are finding some progress. Um, we have found that um, one in 10 miles in California is an EV right now, for example, and that's because California already has supportive EV policies. In London, it's even higher. We have more EV drivers on the platform than in the general population proportionately. So the platform is becoming a place where you can get an EV ride. 
And we want to see this scale. We need to go with these ambitious targets year after year, month over month, we need to be growing this and growing exponentially. But we think that the uh, trend lines on sort of the macro environment in terms of the marketplace for EVs is changing. We're contributing to the conversation about charging and equitable charging and removing charging deserts. And we're also doing our part in educating people. Uh, We have test and drives, we partner with EV Noir to help bring um, minority drivers and two EVs and give them the the opportunity to test one out. So we're trying to lean in on all the different strategies and, and, and then work on the broader macro policy environment um, and so, yeah, <laughs> so that's well, our strategy yeah, right now. Well, you you said a lot in that answer, and I, you know, I, I think you point out a, a couple of things. Um, and but just to be clear, I guess to understand by 2030, at least in the U.S. and in Canada, and the third, what was the third that you mentioned? You wanted in to be, Europe, yeah, in Europe. I think so. All your drivers will be needing to drive uh, electric vehicles, and it, it, so for you to be able to drive for Uber, am I understanding that correctly? You will be driving an electric vehicle by 2030. That's the vision. Yep. That's the vision, right? Yeah. And then, but, but I also think that you're talking about the network and the uh, sort of structures, like the charging stations. You talked a lot about that, right? Um, because it's not just about the vehicles, right? It's about the entire network that has to change to support that type of initiative, right? And I can see possibilities, you know, partnerships, I would imagine, between Uber and some of these charging stations to be able to develop more charging stations um, at more scales. And my hopes, I guess, as a designer, as an architect, it seems to me that it's a fabulous opportunity to produce new kinds of physical models for these charging stations that are not replicas of the suburban gas station, actually, yeah. but are a series of new models that could be from very, very small ones that could be, I don't know, placed in the middle of Tokyo um, to some that are along the highway, you know, so I can imagine an entire typology of charging stations. But the hopes, I guess, would be that they could be more urban, uh, maybe more mixed use. And so it seems like a real also design opportunity there. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I think there's a lot there to dig into and you can see a a lot of repurposing of space, right? So we're at this moment where cities are really reconsidering public right-of-way space, um, underutilized parcels. How can we repurpose that and reconsider design? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I could see how there could be a number of initiatives. So it sounds like an exciting time um, to be at Uber. Um, So maybe shifting from, um, let's say, private vehicles, you know, and we were talking about private ridership. How, uh, if any, does Uber work currently with public transportation or Um, Could you imagine that Uber could be, for example, an answer to the last mile problem? And for those that are listening that might not know what that is, in cities like Miami, we have a very limited public transportation network. Um, And so often the big challenge is how do you get home? How do you get between the train station and that last mile? And so um, I've had previous guests that have kind of talked about um, the possibility of public-private partnerships, right? Where, you know, let's say, the public sector could support the the elevated rail in Miami, but, you know, companies like yourself, like Uber, could maybe um, partner to be able to reconcile that last smile. I mean, that's just one example, but I'm more curious to know if Uber has any policies uh, relating to public transit. Yes, I think there's a really strong relationship between ride hail and transit, and it's not a guaranteed one that negative or positive. I think that transit riders are also um, ride hail users. And uh, if you don't own a vehicle, it's one of the options that you have in your your basket, let's say, um, to get yourself around, right? So there actually are quite a few, um, there's over 50 transit agency partnerships that Uber has created over the last couple of years. And we tried in the beginning to be um, a lot to a lot of agencies. You know, we're thinking about, do we provide software as a service? Do we do on-demand microtransit? Do we, you know, what what is the role for a platform like Uber in the transit space? In the last uh, maybe two years, we started to really focus in on on supporting transit ridership and the transit use case. 
And in this in this case, it's it's for you know the agencies that might be dealing with the low intensity areas around the edges of their city. Um, that's exactly what you're talking about, right? Like you want to take the train maybe somewhere on the system, but you have to get yourself to the train station um, to, to begin with. And we have been partnering with transit agencies to, to do precisely that. In some cases, you can, um, in some cities like Dallas, you can buy, you can pay a transit fare to take an Uber to the transit station. So there's geofencing and ways of making sure that this is, you know, is directed at the transit system. And the transit agency pays the remainder of the price, the cost of the ride to make a hole for the driver because the driver needs to, you know, take something out of providing that ride. And, but it's, you know, at the transit agency in some cases are saving quite a bit of operating expenses um, because they don't have to maybe run a bus, a scheduled bus route along the edges of the city. They, they provide rides maybe late at night or in certain, you know, at certain times of the week um, to pick up the five riders that they know depend on the system and they can use the drivers in other places, maybe increase the frequency in higher density areas. Um, so increase the, you know, how, how much service there is in other places, how frequently the bus comes around and rely on Uber to deliver the, you know, the infrequent low use um, low use areas and bring people, keep people on the system. So I think that's really exciting. That's one aspect of the first last mile problem that you addressed. In some places, which are really small, maybe there's towns that just have one commuter station that takes them to a larger city that they're, you know, in a region um, relationship, regional relationship with. Uber has per- served as their transit system. Innisfil in Ontario is an example of that, where the the agents, the town looked at the cost and benefit of providing uh, one bus line, two bus line, the access that would provide the cost of doing that, and they found that the the access was actually quite limited because it is near. It's a very rural area. It would be very challenging to provide uh, and expensive to provide a bus line, a bus ride to every person in the town. They found that they could provide Uber rides at a more economical way, provide that to everyone in the town. Every household had access to that and would bring people to the commuter station. Well, that's an interesting example and one that I could imagine could apply in many instances. Um, so I guess we cannot speak about transportation really without talking about parking. <laughs> since it since it's really the place where land use and transportation come together. So how is Uber thinking about all the underutilized land in America that's currently used to park vehicles? Or, or is that even really even part of your consideration? I think we are um, acolytes of Don Shoup and um, the high cost of free parking, um, the author of High Cost of Free Parking. And just thinking about this is an area where the economics really don't make sense. We in very, very um, valuable real estate, um, high price real estate cities, we're underpricing parking in some cities that um, have really prioritized car driving. There are way, way too many parking spaces. There are parking structures on every block, maybe two or three in some downtowns across the US. This is a very, I think this is a very North American kind of problem. and and so we are really not doing ourselves a favor here in terms of our parking policy. Um, Uber is a platform; it is a marketplace platform, and so there are ways that we're thinking about increasing utilization of these spaces, right? And um, <clears throat> if you can get rid of some on-street parking for car storage, maybe you can turn it into high-performing curb access for pickup drop-off, deliveries, um, parklets, all the other uses that could serve way more people, a higher volume of people and higher volume of productive activities than storing the car. So that's one way we think about it. We worked on a really interesting study with Fear and Peers a while ago, looking at the curb productivity index and are keen to continue to develop that thinking. Um, With parking structures, I think now we see so many different applications and needs um, within a city, given these 
new services and businesses that are have emerged, especially during the pandemic. And you can imagine a parking structure um, if it's underutilized, you know, like it's it's never really full because there's so many of them in the city, in some cities, that they can become charging hubs, micro distribution centers for Amazon so that they don't have to make as many long trips. They can really centralize their distribution. Maybe there's a bike share system. It's, an, it's a maintenance hub for them. Maybe there's a micro transit system. It, it's a place where the buses can wait. Um, if there's if if there are AVs in a city, it is also a place where the AVs can be parked. Um, it it can generate a lot of activity. These structures that go way beyond storing cars. Mm. That's uh, it gives us a lot to think about. Um, we're we're coming towards the end of the interview, so I was just curious: um, is there a driverless or Uber vehicle in the horizon or in the near horizon? <laughs> Well, um, I think the vision here is to be as a, you know, it's a marketplace, uh, it's a platform, it connects riders and um, to supply of rides that ultimately the platform could be a place where there's, you know, potential for, for driverless. Uh, we have a few small pilots on the delivery side um, and, and a few partnerships. And I think there's more to come there, but I think there's always going to be a mix of different kinds of vehicles and different kinds of services. Uh, and But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah. Yeah. I have a um, a former guest, Annalisa Mayboom, who argues that once um, we have rideshare that is driverless, we actually could potentially increase the cars because now we can have kids in cars, we can have pets in cars. <laughs> so I think your your discussion about uh, the alternative uses of parking spaces, I think will be a, a particularly important one, um, as well as just the general future of a driverless automated vehicle. Um, but just to end, I'm asking all my guests, Shengpei, what is your favorite city and why? So hard to choose a single city, um, but a few that come to mind. I uh, really love how Paris is pedestrianizing and making, really taking, thinking about the street in such a different way as an essentially an extension of their beautiful architecture and the ability for people to socialize um, in and move at a slower pace. So that's uh, that's been so brilliant to see. Um, the other city that really comes to mind is Copenhagen for how it really encourages people to have a sense of play. There are all these little play features that are knit into the city. You can jump into the harbor as you walk alongside it. Um, there are you know trampolines embedded into sidewalks. And I just love that it felt like a place to me where children were very welcome. And um, I think that is an ideal I would love to see in more places. Mm, those are great examples. And Xingpei, thank you. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing, uh, really to think about um, a better uh, transportation network for our cities, um, for your humanity and your enthusiasm in that effort, and for the time that you've spent with me today. It's been a real pleasure. Um, Thanks I for having me. I would uh, ask all of the listeners to tune in next week um, and please listen to all former episodes on Spotify or Apple iTunes. And if you found any of the conversation interesting, you can go ahead and follow us on the On Cities podcast on Instagram. Thanks again, Xingpei, and we'll see everyone next week. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week.